Welcome to the Leadership Mindset Podcast with me, Tony Brooks, where we look to revolutionize your leadership mindset by changing how you think and see your world, enabling you to do the right things and grow significantly as a leader. Welcome back to the Leadership Mindset Podcast series. And I've not been doing interviews for a while because we've been through a pandemic and I got a bit fixated on doing my own solo episodes but I am very very pleased to say today that the first person I've interviewed in blimey over 18 months is Dr Linda Shaw um, and now Linda for some people who may have been following me on LinkedIn will know a little bit about Linda but Linda is a cognitive neuroscientist she's a business psychologist and she specializes in working with people to recalibrate their thinking especially in terms of communication, their limitations and embracing change. Um, now, Linda is founder of the Neuroscience Professional Development Programme. And this was actually a six week programme that I did over the summer um, because I wanted to go deeper in terms of the science in supporting my clients. I'm a qualified psychologist, but I wanted to bring some neuroscience, more neuroscience into what I was doing. And the six week week's program was fabulous um and linda also runs a learning lab um which is a regular sort of neuroscience group on top of that she's an author of a book called your brain is boss which i'd read a while ago but got a second copy um when i joined the six-week program as well and linda is a professional speaker in fact she is the current president national president of the professional speaking association and that's how i very first met linda probably going back about three years ago i think when i think you came to speak at the east midlands group the very first one actually i think when we launched it linda in the east midlands and recently she was running a very successfully running a hybrid national conference over three days uh, which I was there for. Um, so incredibly busy. And so I appreciate you taking time out to do this podcast even more so when I read out those huge list of things you do. And one final thing that Linda does as well is she mentors senior people in behavioural change. And going back to that word recalibration, really, which is changing their behaviour and looking to help them change the behaviour of others. So an incredibly busy person. Linda's mission is to enable people to realize just how much control they have over their own destiny. And I love that. I think that's, um, I relate to that mission myself. Um, so welcome, Linda. Thank you so much. Goodness me, was that all about me? That was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good because you're always um, talking about other people and being kind to other people. So uh, I wanted to give our listeners today the background on how fortunate they are to be spending 30 minutes or so in your company today, Linda. I know that I am, and I'm, I'm going to enjoy it, even if, um, even if it was just me uh, recording this, that, that would be great. But um, all the other people that are here with this will enjoy it as well. So let's start with a question. Um, why is it that you have such a huge passion for neuroscience, Linda? Oh, goodness. Um, ever since I was a, a, a child, I love I love work, finding out why people do what they do. Even as a little girl, I'd go and speak to very old people, really, really elderly people. And I just ask them about their childhood, what it was like when they were growing up. I've had this hunger to understand why people do what they do forever, really. Um, and my passion originally was um, social anthropology. 
And I, again, because I'm, I'm actually an adventure traveler because I was before the pandemic or indeed because of the climate change that that uh, is upon us. But um, I've, so I've been around to a lot of um, third world countries and just to understand, to understand and learn the cultural differences. And it's like traveling is like the university of life. And, um, you know, what, what happens when um, a supermarket comes to a town near London or what happens when a, um, a dam is built in Nepal, um, you know, and all the whole thing, what, why people do what they do and what, what, what influences that. And then, of course, I got interested, very interested in psychology and became a business psychologist and then discovered this wonderful topic, neuroscience. And oh, my goodness me, it's um, it gives a little bit more objectivity to why people do what they do, um, because because I in, for my own research, I use fMRI scanning equipment. But nevertheless, it's still the human brain, which means that. Um, it's the curveballs keep coming. You think you've got it worked out or why people, somebody's doing something and then, whoa, another curveball comes. And it's like, oh, I didn't see that one coming. And that's what's so utterly delicious about the human brain is because there is no one type that fits all. There is, it's just fascinating. And the more I understand about it, the more I realize I'm in control. And I use the word control carefully because it can be misinterpreted, but I am in more control of how I want to spend my life. Not completely, because that would be stupid because you know the brain kicks in, fight or flight response and all of those things that we very much need. So, but no, we do, we can, we can, we can mold our brain. We can change the architecture of our brain. We can change the chemicals of our brain, depending on our behavior. Our behavior changes our brain and our brain changes our behavior. So what is there not to love? No, I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. You know, funnily enough though, I've, and some of that I didn't know about you, you know, the, the, the going around the third world countries. So I, I thought I was going to learn some new things to you, about you today, Linda. Um, my my fascination with psychology started in a way more about myself, you know, I think. Um, I've had my own battles with my own sort of psychology and thinking over the years. And I think my fascination first started with that. But then, as you said, I think it's that coming from that place of belief that, people have more power over their own lives and their own thinking and it's great to be able to help people with that and I guess with you with the neuroscience piece it's bringing more science and objectivity to something that is a little bit unpredictable really isn't it you know the um and I guess that's where the um where the passions come come for you Linda so yeah no I, I get that so yeah why would why wouldn't everybody be fascinated with neuroscience and I think it's I think that fascination is growing, isn't it, as well? So, so linking on to something else then, why do you think, I mean, obviously there's your deep passion for the topic there, but why do you think neuroscience is, is so important and why should business leaders be paying more attention to what it means for them and their people and their organisations? Why, why do you think a business leader listening today should be thinking more seriously about neuroscience? If... Um... Well, first of all, if you are a business leader, a manager or, or C-suite, whomever, you're always going to be have people working for you. And if you can understand them a little bit better, understand your customers and clients a little bit better, understand yourself a bit better, you will avoid conflict. 
you will have more collaboration going on, you will have less absenteeism because people are feeling less stressed and anxious. So there's loads of reasons. I mean, if you, for instance, um, you, if you know that somebody is, is, is flies off on the handle, it could quite easily be the amygdala being activated for, for a fear-induced reason, or it could be that the dopamine secretions have plummeted. And why is that? Well, that could be because of disappointment. And um, so therefore, they're going to get angry and irrational, and which means that you're not going to have a sensible conversation with people, or even worse, get stuck with, with, with horns locked, where nobody actually moves further forward. Um, there's, there is so many things. We, if we understand that perception is unique to only us, therefore we that perception is our own reality, which means that if somebody doesn't think the same as us, it's not wrong, it's just different. And therefore, we become a little bit more compassionate about that way somebody's thinking differently. If people um, respond a certain way habitually, when we understand how we make habits and how to replace habits, we can do something about it. We can actually um, uh, uh, encourage more creative and innovative thinking when we understand what state to put the brain in. When we can um, have a healthier workforce when we when we actually really bang on about sleep being so incredibly important and that, you know, burning the candle at 2 a.m. because you're working is not a medal. It is actually stupid. So therefore, understanding that, the business starts to run smoother. You understand emotions better. You'll understand goals and judgment. Oh, goodness me. The, the, the catalogue of ways that neuroscience can help business leaders is actually huge and incredibly effective. Yeah, and I love them. Um, there, there are two or three things that really resonated for me. But I think that, you know, perce perception is your re your perception is your reality, and that understanding that there's no real there's no reality as such because everyone is filtering and forming their own perception of it. I think that 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 understanding um, means that you can, it leads to greater empathy, doesn't it, Linda, and understanding and actually being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And, you know, and, and I think all of that opens doors, really. Um, so I think you're dead right with that. And um, and I think for me as well, I, I don't know about you, you I think that um, business people for me are, are way too preoccupied with doing the do you know, getting up every day with their task list and getting their emails open and head down, getting on with things. And I don't think there's anywhere near enough emphasis put on what the thinking is like, you know, for the individual leader. How does that leader think about themselves, about their people, about their organisation? What's the collective thinking like as well? And, you know, the, how do they view their world? And I think you, you very much um, touched on that there eloquently about um, the fact that this 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 kind of, well, for me, psychology and neuroscience, it just can really raise the game of business, can't it, in terms of the way that business is carried out, rather than just focusing on the carrying out, I guess. Um, so, yeah, loved that. Um, what do you think are, okay, so if we're going to try and pick it, you touched on a few examples there with habits and sleep and what have you. If we were to talk about some specific areas then, in terms of lessons and ways we can apply neuroscience in business leadership. What specific examples do you think, just, just for today, you know, I know you could talk for hours on this, Linda, but if we were to pick maybe two or three examples of what somebody could take away just from listening today, 
what what would you drill down into do we do we want to start should we start with habits sure um have habits um in terms of business really means um i think what is more relevant is the habitual response that people have so you know i can be i can be sitting in on a board meeting and i'm listening to two of the directors and you can see absolutely clearly as an outsider that one starts to speak the other one has assumed they know what that person's going to say out of out of habit and so therefore they respond habitually accordingly and they are um, in conflict straight away so nobody takes ownership of the tasks they agreed to do in the board meeting which is one of the biggest things i hear from board meetings from ceos they say oh, you know everybody said they're going to do xyz and nobody's done a thing they've not actually taken it on board in fact what happens is not only might people not do that what they've agreed to do but equally they will sabotage other people's efforts unconsciously perhaps below conscious awareness consciousness is one of my favorite topics of all time I know that. yeah <laughs> yeah so you know unconscious processing is bubbling away all the time and people don't realize how how they're coming across so if you've got this this habitual um dance if you like in the boardroom um and you, you will find that you know all the board meetings are actually you're not going anywhere. They're not. You know, the progress is really slow, or indeed, um, uh, not happening at all. So, understanding habitual responses and and and, and recognizing one's habitual responses once we've worked it out together, then then people can replace those those responses. And it's you never. And how you change habits is you is you replace them. So you don't try to stop them. That's just too ticks are too hard box. Replace them in something that is pleasurable, something that you like to do. So you have a new behaviour of of replacing this old behaviour with a new behaviour that you enjoy doing. If you enjoy doing, you will repeat it and repeat it, and the new neural pathways will get deeper and deeper and nice, nice, beautifully myelinated with myelin, all gorgeous, nice and greasy, and the messages are going lovely. Everything's going great, and therefore that, that neural pathway then becomes a default neural pathway, which is indeed what a habit is. So therefore, you have having understanding people's habitual responses or the habitual ways that they do things that may no longer serve them is a massive tick in the box when it comes to progress for any kind of a company or organization yeah i guess the um i just wanted to pick up on a couple of things you said there because i think there's some really fascinating areas we could drill down to i i i talk to leaders about being more conscious because i think you're right i think you can easily drop into patterns of responding to things or behaving so you know if somebody gives you if somebody gives a leader feedback, their natural response may be defensive, which is almost an unconscious thing to do, get into. And I, I, you know, I think you love the word awareness, Linda. And I think being aware of when you're dropping into patterns that are more unconscious and more either self-destructive or destructive for others, and then being able to be aware you've done that and lifting yourself out of that is um, is is a is a is a big challenge, but I think it's a really important one. And um, I think, you know, as you were saying there, I know you've talked to me about habits before, about trying to just stop a habit, it's challenging. But if you can flip a habit to um, do something that is more purposeful, more enjoyable, and as you say, then repeat it. I know there's there's all these conversations about it takes a habit 21 days or I know you believe 
there isn't necessarily a definitive timeline on that. I guess it depends on the habit you try to introduce as well. Uh, yeah, you've got to be careful of these timelines that people impose. Sometimes it is based upon some evidence, but you're always going to get people who will not respond that way. So, for instance, if you are managing someone um, and or coaching someone or mentoring someone and you've set them a timeline of 21 days and this will change, and then they work really, really hard to make it happen. And on day 23, it goes wrong. They're going to feel like a huge failure. So there's no point. There's, I don't understand why you would set people up to fail. Um, so um, for me, I, I don't like putting timelines on everything. Everything is Every day is a work in progress. Every day we make progress. And every day we get further to where we want to be. It doesn't matter about timelines. Yeah, no, I like that. So uh, let me just actually, an, an example, I was trying to think of a, a good example. An example comes to mind. Let's see if we can work with this just for a moment, actually. One of the things I find with business leaders, business owners, is um, I guess uh, an overreactive relationship with email. It may well be that they've got email pop-ups on their computers. So, you know, emails come in, they get a pop-up, they go straight in to look at their email. And for me, that's not a particularly effective habit. And I think for a lot of leaders, they start to realise that they are almost um, becoming a slave to their email or you know, email has the power over them. And um, so one of the changes that I work with leaders on, um, and if I'm honest, sometimes myself, because you can lapse into bad habits, is... Um, having a more structured approach to email. So going into it, maybe first thing in the morning, dipping in lunchtime, maybe then late in the afternoon. Now, so in a way, we're talking about replacing a habit there. What are, what are your thoughts on how to do that more effectively then? Um, I mean, you talked about making it pleasure, more pleasurable, I guess. What are, Any thoughts around that, Linda, about whether um, you can bring the the winners of neuroscience into how you flip a habit like that? I think um, there are a couple of ways of looking at it. First of all, um, one of our, our, our friends who's a very senior CEO, every time he goes into a new organisation, he, he absolutely makes a rule, right, if you're going to email a client, you can only do that twice before you go to see them. Well, clearly... Of the of COVID, <clears throat> however, that that a face to face phone call or something or a Zoom call or what Teams or whatever medium you're using, um, because he believes that you should not rely on emails for everything. And equally, he also believes, and I've seen this with many senior business people, is that stop copying so many people in. You know, especially if you're just covering your back. Just stop it. They, they don't need their inbox flooded and jammed, especially if they're senior people. I mean, I know don't look at them because it's like it, it's, you know, if you delegated work to people, as of course you should do, especially in a large organization, stop copying them in. You know, it's just get on with your work. And if something goes wrong, um, you know, speak up. But um, they will, you know, people, the managers cannot micromanage. They haven't got the time. 
So don't keep thinking that you're covering your back by copying in everyone. So that's one thing that you can all, we can all help one another by being discerning about what we're emailing and not, and not bushing. Well, what time do you want to make? I don't know. What do you prefer? Well, I actually thought, oh, we could do Friday. Yeah, Friday, which Friday? Could that be? Oh my goodness, pick up the phone. Um, you know, it's like horrendous amount of emails going on. Just or just say, right, um, this is my calendar, or okay, I, I can do this day, that time, la 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 la. Just cut it down. And equally, of course, as you've quite rightly said, is to chunk time. The psychology of chunking time is strong, um, um, and uh, the research is massive. So, chunking time to um, that you'd actually address emails at certain points of your day. And even have that as an as an out of office or at the at the bottom of your with your signature block. I check my emails between eight and nine and um, four and five or five and six, whatever. But and please, please don't respond at night. Please do. Yeah, now some good points there, Linda. And I guess when you talked about making new habits pleasurable as well, that people start to see the benefits of not being a slave to their email and not getting so much email, and uh, and so ultimately starting to adjust habits they start to see the benefits of that and it becomes almost like a self-reinforcing behavior as you say then and then the neural pathways get re you know reinforced as well and that becomes your new modus operandi really doesn't it as you on email yeah and yeah. Absolutely. I love, yeah i love that okay then what about if we were to pick another area that might be really interested interesting in terms of applying it to leadership what would you what, what else would you talk about this is going to sound awfully cliched, but the speed of change is so fast. We all know that. And it's not going away. <clears throat> if we tried to um, resist it, um, we're, we're, we're on, we will become dinosaurs and we become anxious and we become fearful and we could become depressed. We could become all sorts of things. So we have to recognise not change for change's sake, because some things don't need changing. If it ain't broke, don't fix it to a certain extent. But what we do need is we need innovative thinking. We need creative thinking. And that doesn't mean to say that it's a, a, an ageist statement. So clearly, younger employees are going to come in fresh and they are going to have much more creative ideas, but they won't be based on experience. So therefore, we need all age groups to be innovative and creative. Um, and the way of doing that is by putting the brain in alpha frequency, um, which is very much like, you know, when you just awake in the morning, you're not quite awake, you're not quite asleep, you're sort of in limbo land. That is when the brain is really creative. That's when you wake up and you come up with answers to problems from the day before. It's because the brain is in this frequency that is allowing more creative thought. Um, and you can deliberately do that. It's because it's because my work is all about deliberate choice. You can deliberately choose to put your brain in that frequency. For instance, you can do it by meditation. But if meditation isn't your thing, you could do it by just going for a walk. You could do it by staring out of the window and watching the rainfall. Um, you know, when I was at school, if you stared out of the window, you got in trouble. But actually, the brain is working so beautifully when you do that. And, and you see children, you watch a two-year-old, all of a sudden they just stare and their brain is just slowed right down and they're just staring. And then they come back and it's brilliant. That's when all sorts of, of development and growth is going on. And that is when we become really creative and innovative. 
So therefore, um, for me, one of the keys, I think, for a business to progress is for people to be encouraged or come together in a meeting and encourage this, which you can do by getting somebody from the outside to help if you wish or do it yourself, um, and actually to make sure that you work in a culture where nobody is saying anything that is nonsense. Just say the most ridiculous things that come into your mind when you when you've been put the brain in alpha frequency when you're in a, in a relaxed state when your brain is in more of a pleasurable state that is when you come up with amazing answers and every every contribution is worth thinking about yes yeah, so there's you know some really fascinating things around being more creative and I, I liked what you were talking about in terms of creativity being feasible you know at, at any age I think we're all capable of being more creative than we believe we are and I remember on your train program, Linda, we were talking about the difference between intuition and instinct and instinct being more genetic, but intuition benefiting from that experience. And I think it's about trusting our intuition as well, sometimes in our creativity. And um, and I love that about anything's OK, you know, having a culture where nothing, you know, nothing that's said is, you know, everything's everything's uh, up for debate and you can say anything. And I think it's encouraging that divergent thinking rather than convergent thinking isn't it where you allow people divergent thinking sorry for anyone who's not come across that term is where you fan out in terms of your thinking you don't converge onto a single way of thinking but you allow multiple views and and encouraging all of that so yeah i really i really love that in terms of creativity and and you know and another thing it was fascinating when you shared that on the course about early morning um, but you, you know, you're in alpha wave state. I, I woke up uh, a few weeks back now before I was going to do a talk at an event, and I wake up early, <clears throat> early. And sometimes you get frustrated when you wake up early, don't you? And I, um, but I thought, okay, I'll just let my mind wander. And I literally just put this talk together that I've been asked to do in about half an hour. I quickly got my phone and sort of captured it in Evernote, <laughs> and I thought. Well, that's what Linda is talking about um, in action, really. So I guess yeah. one of the lessons for people to take away from this is if they wake up early in the morning, they're getting frustrated because they woke up early. Just allow their mind to wander and they might have a really creative hour before they get out of bed. Well, this is why the word control is can be misconstrued and, and deliberate choice, because basically what, I, what I'm suggesting is that we're not trying to control everything by holding on tightly. We're actually controlling things better by letting them go. We actually are um, we are making a deliberate choice, like you've just said, to lay in bed for that half an hour longer. Um, and goodness me, you put a whole talk together, which is fantastic. So you've just allowed your brain to work as best as it can in an optimum state. And that is the sort of deliberate choice and the recalibration that I get the most excited about because it's um, it's normal. We just need to be aware of it. Yeah, no, brilliant. I was going to ask you the question, which we started to go on to really about um, how can neuroscience be used to get the best out of people in business? And we were talking about business leaders, getting the best out of people generally. And, and I guess that creativity and intuition is part of that. Um, how about the subject of multitasking, Linda? I know you've got some views on people, the way that people work and how they focus their attention and multitask. What, what are your thoughts around that? What does what does your experience in neuroscience tell us with that then? If, well, first of all, multitasking is a myth. 
The brain doesn't multitask. What it does is it switches rapidly between tasks. And when you switch between tasks, there's a trade-off. The trade-off is you may have lost some accuracy or you may have lost some concentration time or you may have lost time itself. There is a trade-off from switching from task to task. So if you've got a boss who keeps going into somebody's office and saying, oh, and can you just do this? Oh, and by the way, and la, 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 and they're trying to concentrate on something. You are losing a huge amount of employee labor, a huge amount of time, because you're constantly interrupting them. You think that you're giving them more jobs to do, which is great, but you can't interrupt them all the time. Let people do their job. Um, and just concentrate on in chunking their time again and to get a particular task done without switching because they can't multitask. That switching is costs organizations an absolute fortune. Ah, brilliant. And um, I think you quoted some research where, what am I correct? You, you were talking about some research done into people flipping between e- email and sort of mobile phone and um, it, it impacted on their um, IQ level as well. Or- yeah yeah there is research that suggests that it that does it does actually do and it's very stressful yeah no, okay brilliant okay well again we could talk for hours on that but um in the interest of time let's talk about a subject that's really really fascinating for me and I'm, I'm really hoping will be fascinating for the people listening to this and that's the the area of um the survival instinct that comes to, you've, you've already been talking about the amygdala and that part of the brain, the sort of part of the emotional centre of the brain, the amygdala. But um, I, I know a lot of people will have heard of the term imposter syndrome as well. What's, what's your view, on, first of all, on imposter syndrome? Do you really believe that's a thing or is it another flavour of survival instinct that plays out in us? What are your thoughts on, on that then, Linda? Um, I know a lot of really, really bright people Um Clearly in academia, they're doing all sorts of amazing things from the Bradford universities and they're just really, really bright. And they, some of them do have imposter syndrome. Um, I think it comes from um, being a high achiever. And especially if you are amongst other high achievers and they are more high achieving than you. So you feel like you're an imposter, that you're not good enough. Not that you're trying to compete, but you realise how little you know. The more you learn, the more you realise how little you know. Okay, so there's that element to it. Also, there is the element of people's confidence being eroded because of racism or biases or bullying. So we've got to be careful that we're not, you know, we somebody's feeling they're not good enough or they're doubting their own abilities, which is what imposter syndrome apparently is, actually could be the culture of the organisation eroding that person's self-belief. Yeah. Um, and so I think we have to be very mindful of labeling things. And, and, and the, trouble, the trouble is with um, anything where you say, oh, you have got imposter syndrome, you have got this, you have got that, you put the onus on that person. You yeah. know, it's like, it's like it's their responsibility and it's their problem and they are to blame that they've got that. Well, in actual fact, it might be a myriad of things. It might be because of biases in the workplace. It might be the actual culture of an organisation that has created that. So we should be looking at the culture of the business, not necessarily at the individual. And equally, it could be that that person has come from a family background of high achievers. So they're, they're driven like this or they might be. Um, perfectionists 
And perfectionism, you know, people wear this perfectionism as a badge of honour. It's not if it's harming you. If it's not, if you're holding back that piece of work and not letting it go because you've got to get it just that little bit better, it's not helpful. So perfectionism could actually be interpreted as um, imposter syndrome as well. So there's lots of, there's lots of, it's quite an umbrella term that, um, I think we have to be a bit mindful of. And equally, I know lots of people who actually look at um, imposter syndrome, if they have it, as an advantage because it pushes them to achieve more. It helps them um, keep learning. It helps, it, you know, it, and it stops them, which is a really nice one. It stops them being egotistical because you're always doubting yourself. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing by any means. What I'm saying is it's a lot more complicated yeah. And we are led to believe sometimes. Yeah, I, lo- I love that. And I know you and I were talking about this subject um, a while back. And uh, for me, I think we're all subjected to those. That are, well, I'm not hugely keen on the term syndrome, but I think we're all um, I, I, we have our moments where we have uh, doubts about ourselves in terms of us being good enough, could be good enough as a partner husband wife father could be as a speaker could be as a business person as a leader all of those kind of things and I think wrapping it up as a syndrome uh, creates some issues really as you say there could be a lot of factors involved in that externally as well as internally and I think um, for me again it comes back to that survival instinct so I think those moments where we fear we're not good enough can come back to in some way shape or form to um to a form of survival do we feel threatened um, or do we believe we're threatened and you know you've talked to me very eloquently about the way the amygdala can um, you know alert us and for, for imagined problems rather than real problems and, um, and and also we were having a good we had a good conversation about public speaking which I know is very dear to your heart um, and a lot of people have a very irrational fear of public speaking and and it, We were talking about the fact that um, people fear being ousted from a group or not being part of a group. And, you know, our survival instinct can kick kick in in terms of being wanting to be part of a group for our security. And public speaking, if you feel like you're going to be rejected by by the audience, that's sort of almost like a fear of rejection of, you know, from a group, really. I don't I don't know if you wanted to sort of add any any anything to that, that Linda. yeah, I mean that's where the anthropologist in me comes out. Is we are we we are meant to be part of a small group of people, a tribe or a small community, whatever that looks like. And um, if, if we are not, in the old days, we could have starved to death if we were ousted by our group. So, in actual fact, this um, <clears throat> this group membership is actually like a a sort of a social control. So if you murdered somebody or you raped somebody or you stole something from your neighbour, they could actually ostracise you from the group. And that was a very big deal years ago or indeed a very big deal for some cultures to this day. So therefore, we have got this innate fear of not belonging. So if we're going up on stage, we are leading with the chin. You know, it's okay. I'm going to say my thing. You might disagree with me. Oh, no, that's scary. (laughs) Because I'm going to be ousted from my membership here of you liking me. You need to like me because I want want to belong to you all. So can we please? So it's actually, um, it's 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 a big deal. 
it is a big deal. You know, it might sound silly to be frightened of standing up on stage and, and talking to people because you talk to people normally, but actually you're exposing your weaknesses, you're exposing yourself for your opinions and your ideas and your thoughts, which could ostracize you from the people you're speaking with. And that's a very painful and very troublesome place to be. So it's quite perfectly understandable. The thing is, what we have to remember is that the fear of failure like that the, is, is um, and the fear of not belonging is not life-threatening in our culture today. Yeah, and we lose sight of that within our own thinking, don't we, at times? So it feels, it can be, as we're you know, just talking about the amygdala, uh, I guess in a way almost overreacting, but it can be seeing um, a threat to f- almost physical survival that isn't, that isn't there and um, overcooks it, I guess, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the the, amygdala, uh, the the fear, the responses the brain has to anything that it could be life threatening are real and normal, and they must be in place, and they always will be. Um, so, therefore, they, you know, the, these parts of the brain are doing a fantastic job. But we need to take a breath so that cognitively, you know, our frontal cortex can go, hang on a minute, let's calm this this lot down and uh, just take a deep breath. You know, they're not they haven't got any any rotten tomatoes or bad eggs. They're not going to be throwing them at you. It's absolutely fine. And somebody will agree with you in the audience, if not all. And anyway, my job is as a speaker to shake things up a little bit and get people to think about something slightly differently. Yeah. 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 And I know that you talk um, one of the lots of things stuck in my mind from when we did the six week program. But one of the things is about you talk about the need to stay in a calm and alert state um particularly i guess because um if you don't do that um then we can have raising cortisol levels which cause all sorts of problems with ongoing you know ongoing stress leading to that and what have you and why so why do you believe it's that is important to be in that calm alert state then linda why is that a good thing to strive for for us all individually when we're calm and alert we're operating with the parasympathetic nervous system which is all about um, rest and digest. So therefore your digestive system's working properly, the um, the nervous system is working properly, the uh, anxiety levels are are diminished, um, and all of those things that can stop us thinking clearly are working well, which is absolutely fantastic. So when we are calm and when we're alert, the brain and the body are working at their optimum. If we then, if we tip over into the sympathetic nervous system, which is all about our fight or flight responses, shuts down the the digestive system, makes the heart race, you start to sweat, all sorts of things start to go wrong, which is great to get you out of trouble, but in in a chronic state that is not great at all, it's very bad for us. So therefore we we really need to um, do our best just to take a breath, say calm and and when we are calm um we will be more alert we will be um be able to think more clearly and that Uh, from a a neuroscience angle then what's happening when we're calm and alert what where are the what's happening what parts of the brain are we using that's well, you're using a lot of brain, a huge amount of brain. But what, what, what is interesting is that cortisol secretions will be lower. So you don't want cortisol secretions in a chronic state um, because cortisol in small, in small amounts is absolutely fine. It keeps us snappy. It keeps us on our toes. But in a chronic state, it can even cause heart disease and some cancers. So the state gets stuck 
in these high stressful situations can cause us a lot of problems, a huge amount of problems. And we don't want to be stuck in adrenaline. And mind you, adrenaline dissipates quickly. But um, so therefore, you know, we, that's fine. That, that's again to, to get you out of trouble in the fight or flight response. Um, but nevertheless, if, if we can calm the brain down and take a breath and just think clearly, we will be physically and mentally better off. And so will business. Yeah, no, fantastic. I think that's something we should all strive for in those moments that can raise our stress levels uh, all the time because stress becoming such a, a big issue. And I guess actually that's part of being resilient as a leader, isn't it? To to focus on keeping yourself more in that calm alert state when you know the problems hit and, and come along. Linda, I'm conscious we could talk for hours and hours and I'd really value your time. And I'm going to ask you one Final question, and then we'll signpost where people can find out more about um, more about you. Where do you think neuroscience is going to go in in the future? Then, in, and particularly in terms of how it will impact business. Um, I mean, it's it's amazing already. I guess in the last ten years, how it's become much more prominently talked about and what have you. But what what do you see? You know, could happen in the future. Um, as we get the next generation of neuroimaging equipment, we are going to be discovering even more that we had no idea exists. This is why the topic is so, so utterly delicious. Um, and the uh, businesses are now realizing that um, they do need to understand why people buy. That's been going on for some time, but why they're losing staff, why they need to be changing, how they're going to change, what's the future markets looking like, how we're going to do all of those business things are underpinned with psychology and neuroscience, everything. So um, um, and, unless we are talking about artificial intelligence, this is, this is going to be where we're going. So neuroscience, I believe, is going to become even more important in business. I really do. Yeah, no, I share that view as well. And I say uh, I come from a psychological background, which I always thought had more to offer business and um, probably the business world believe I think it's offered a lot to sport but I but my fascination with neuroscience is growing thank thanks in great part to being stimulated by spending six weeks on your on your course Linda and, and talking to you and starting to read around more now as well you know I, I really enjoyed your your book was probably the first book I read in that area and then I've just read other things as well um, but yeah let, let's let's just finish quickly by um asking what you're up to in the future how can people find out more about you obviously there's the the your brain is boss book that people can get a copy of um you've got your your neuro you know the, the program that i was on you've got the program coming up again i believe round about now so i just wonder what dates you've got in the diary for the um neuroscience professional development program yeah, the programme starts again tomorrow, um, 20th of, of um, October. We are October, yes. Um, and that's for six weeks. So it ends beautifully on the 30th of November, which is great in time for the madness of December. So the next um, one will be probably 2022 after that then, Linda? Yeah, the next one will be in January, mid-January. Okay. And that starts again for the next six weeks. So if anyone is interested, um, I'd be delighted to have you on board. We I keep it very much to small groups of people. And we have in between each session of videos, we have live calls or sorry, they're live calls in terms of being on Zoom. 
And um, so we all get together and thrash it out for 90 minutes with a zillion questions and ideas. <laughs> and it's, it's just fabulous. Um, and then they people get a one-to-one with me at the end of it. Um, so we discuss their business or where they're going with this information to make it really useful to them, just them. Um, because I'm very, very keen that this information is always as useful as possible. <clears throat> and um, and then, yeah, there's, there's an awful lot of extra things that happen. So, um, and that will start in, as, as, you, as I say, the next one after this is mid-January. So if you want to know more, I'm Linda with a Y, Linda at drlindashaw.com. Um, and that's my email address, or my website is drlindashaw.com, D-R-L-Y-N-D-A-S-H-A-W. Yeah, brilliant. And um, also, obviously, uh, people can find you on LinkedIn as Linda Shaw um, and connect with you on there. And I say I can't recommend the course enough, really. As you say, it was um, the education through the videos was brilliant. We had, I think, 10 people on our program, which was really great size group. And we had the calls every week and the one to one I had with you, Linda. And then also one thing you missed as well is... um, there's a British Psychological Society qualification yes. at the end of it when you take a test. So I managed to pass the test, um, did, some, did some good revision and swatting to get myself ready and got, got through that. So people can have a form of qualification at the end, which is um, another great thing. And you've got your, I think, you've, I, I love your regular newsletters. Can people sign up for those on the on your website as well, Linda? Yeah, my new website is being launched on the 1st of December. Yep. So it, 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 everything will be all singing or dancing on the 1st of December, hopefully. And uh, it, it looks fantastic. So people can sign up on the program. They can sign up on the Learning Lab, which is a membership. Um, um, we, we meet months a month again on Zoom to have a deep dive into a particular topic. Next, this week, um, our deep dive is on motivation. So it's the neuroscience of motivation, which is which is great fun, absolutely huge fun. So, yeah, and also my mentoring, you can just email me on the mentoring, um, but that's for the senior business people who don't want to join group things, but they want to understand how they can tweak their own behaviour or indeed help others to tweak their behaviour for more efficient business. Yeah, brilliant. And obviously, as well, if people are out there listening to this who run events, conferences and what have you, then um, Linda is a very prominent speaker as well. So having a chat with her on that. So, hey, Linda, it's been an utter pleasure, as it always is. Um, I I know people are going to find this really fascinating. And um, I I imagine there's a lot of people where it will uh, sort of spark their imagination and interest to a point where they, um, they definitely will take you up on those offers of finding out more and getting involved with you more really and um yeah a six six weeks it was it was definitely one of the best investments i've ever made oh that's business. so yeah thank you very much tony so you were delightful working with you and delightful talking to you today thank you so much yeah brilliant thanks ever so much linda okay bye If you want to explore your leadership mindset in more detail, why not complete our free leadership diagnostic at thetonybrooks.com and subscribe to this podcast to join us for future podcasts.